0: Hello and welcome to a unique edition of James Bond and Friends. A couple of weeks ago we were kindly invited by Ian Fleming Publications and HarperCollins to interview author Kim Sherwood on stage at the London book launch of Double or Nothing. But before we went in front of the specially invited audience at HarperCollins HQ in London, my MI6 HQ colleague Vipple sat down with Kim for an exclusive interview. As this was recorded in an open space ahead of the big event, the audio quality is not up to our usual par, but it will give you a sense of the atmosphere on the night. We hope you enjoy this companion piece to Double or Nothing. Take it away. I'm here with Kim, who has just finished and is about to go on stage to launch her newest, well, new book, first book of three. Um, So... Kim, can you tell us a little bit about your family connection to, to Bond and when you first came across Bond?
1: Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. I've been a Bond fan. Really, the first thing was seeing Pierce Brosnan on the TV. When the Brosnan films made it onto TV, I was too young to see them in, in cinema. So it was seeing him dive off the dam in GoldenEye, you know, fall down the Millennium Dome. It was so spectacular, and I loved his Bond, and I would always play his Bond, you know, in imaginary games. And then I first read Fleming when I was about 12 or 13, and I said to my mum one day, I want to try writing a spy book. I'd always written stories, and I loved the Anthony Horowitz-Alex Ryder series when I was growing up. So I wanted to try writing a spy book, but I didn't know how, and my mum said, well, read one, which is great advice. And I bought a second-hand copy from Russia with Love, uh, the pan paperback with the cutouts and everything. And I just fell in love with Ian Fleming's rising from the first sentence. You know, that first sentence is something like, um, the naked man who lay s- splayed by the swimming pool might have been dead. And immediately you think, why might he have been? What's happened? You know, just drawn into his writing. I loved his imagery, his visual language, the characterization, the dialogue. And it was so exciting being invited into that world. It really feels like an invitation in Fleming's writing to come into this world with him. I read all of the books as a teenager, loved all of the films, And the family connection, I didn't realize until I was about 13 or 14, I was given that big gold guide to James Bond book for Christmas. And I was at my granddad's house, and I was looking through it, and there was a picture of him standing next to Roger Moore. (laughs) And I was so excited. And I ran downstairs to the kitchen, and I said to him, you never told me you were in James Bond. And he sort of laughed and said, oh, you know, darling, that was a million years ago. Because he was very proud of that connection. and, And he'd actually almost been cast as Bond. Uh, uh, He was Fleming's pick, but but he was tied up in other deals. But he was delighted to have appeared in them, and then, of course, had gone on to a long career and had paid inspector to Oxford. So there were other things that were more the centerpiece of his career. But I was so excited, you know, I was pestering him with a thousand questions.
0: (laughs) So he was in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That's right. uh, You only lived twice. And Spine Love Me. me. Yeah. Um, So, oh, very exciting. Um, So. Thinking about this book, so how did you end up getting approached?
1: Well, it really was a dream come true. I had said to my agent, the first time I signed with my agent, we went to lunch together. She asked me, what are your career, dreams and ambitions? And I said, sort of half jokingly, but not really joking, one day I want to write James Bond. And she remembered that I'd said that and she heard that the estate were looking for a new writer. Anthony Horace's tenure was coming to an end. And they were looking for a, you know a young writer to take it on, and if, and they're looking for you know a real fan. It's their family legacy. It's really important to them that you are a, a diehard fan. And they've been looking for a while and hadn't uh, quite found the right person. And as Sue heard they were searching she remembered that i had tweeted when my first book came out testament i tweeted a picture of it in a bookshop next to anthony Horowitz's book and i tweeted something like oh one step closer to my dream of writing bond and she scrolled all the way through my twitter found that screenshot it sent it to the Flemings, and said maybe this is the writer for you they read testament they enjoyed it and they asked me to to send in some ideas And they also asked if there was anything I could send along that kind of evidenced my love for Bond. Because everybody everybody can say, of course I'm a fan of James Bond, but what do you have to sort of show? And luckily, I had a school report that I'd written when I was about 13. It was like homework, and you had to write about an author you admire. And I'd written about Ian Fleming. And I'd made this whole booklet with flaps and illustrations and everything. And I still had that. Um, So really, this is like thanks to my mum for not throwing (laughs) these away. (laughs) So I scanned that, and I sent it to them with a letter just saying, you know, this would really be the dream of a lifetime, Here are my ideas. They, They liked what I'd said, invited me to lunch, and it all took off from there. So it was pretty amazing.
0: So when was that?
1: So that was late 2019, and then I had to keep it a secret for about a year. I couldn't tell anybody. Um, I mean, I told my immediate family, you know, but I didn't even tell friends and colleagues, and people would say, oh, what are you working on at the moment? Oh, nothing, nothing really, I'm just sort of dabbling. (laughs) I wanted to scream off the rooftops, I'm writing James Bond. (laughs) Oh my gosh, so...
0: Uh, just jumping forward so from that 2019 mm. so when were you able to tell people and what did you do? Mm. Did you scream it from the rooftop?
1: <laughs> so when I began to tell a few more people I would I, I would tell people really tentatively because it sounded so unreal so I, I would hear myself saying to people oh I'm writing um, um, James Bond um. <laughs> and then people go it sounds so unbelievable. And then we did the big public announcement, and um, and the story was broken in The Guardian, and I was really nervous. But I also, part of me thought, will anybody even notice? Will anybody even care? So I I posted The the Guardian story on Twitter, and then I went to make a cup of tea, and I thought, I wonder if anyone will sort of pick this up. Went back to my computer, there's hundreds and hundreds of notifications. And then over the weekend, I was... In the press in foreign languages that I didn't recognise, and um, it it all kind of took off. So it was it was pretty amazing. So surreal experience. Absolutely surreal. It remains surreal.
0: (laughs) Well, it's it's enjoy it. Um, Yes. um, uh, Anthony Horowitz on his last book Mm. had talked about the surreal experience, Mm. and he said it is a ride. So buckle up,
1: oh, absolutely, <laughs>
0: um, and, and definitely enjoy. It. So, um, what has been? So, you're steeped in the spy genre for a, a job outside of writing. Mm. You you're a, a, an expert and um, teach literature. So, thinking about that, how has all of that? and other spy work Mm. influenced the process of writing the the book Mm. and your imagination and the direction you've taken the story?
1: I think that because I read Fleming so young, he really influenced my style. And it's not that I write like Ian Fleming. Only he can write like Ian Fleming. and I can only write like myself. But because I read him so young, I, I do think that some of his imagery and visual language influenced how I came to write. And also the the kind of stories I was interested in writing. So um, as a teenager I loved James Bond and I loved Modesty Blaze. I don't know if you've read Modesty Blaze, but um I just I loved her character so much. She was she was you know what I wanted to be. I wanted to be that cool, that collected, you know. And I, I loved Peter O'Donnell's writing and, and his style and his humour as well and the warmth of those stories. And I started to write crime short stories. Actually, the first thing I ever had published when I was 17 was a crime short story that I sent off to a a now long-defunct magazine called Thriller UK, and they they published my story. And it really was writing kind of in that vein, you know, a crime caper spy thriller. And I remember, I I studied creative writing undergraduate and postgraduate, and I remember showing my crime stories to a professor who said, but nobody writes things like this anymore. And I, I was sort of thinking, but, but can I anyway? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I just wanted to play in that sandbox. So yeah. that's what's amazing about this opportunity. You know, is the chance to to join that world because it's a very particular that nineteen fifties nineteen sixties era of spy fiction is very particular. And when you're writing James Bond, you have a chance to kind of indulge in the aesthetics of that. Um, as well as the fun of that. So certainly Fleming, O'Donnell. I also love John McCarry's writing and I love how he uses the spy genre to think politically about Britain and to think about what we represent globally. Um, and, and, and he really, because of the length of John McCarry's career, sort of the chronicler of our time through, mm. through the spy genre. So... I, I, I just love his writing so much as well.
0: Okay. And then can we dive into your first book? So the, the process you went through mm. and how's that impacted this writing mm. and the, the way, the discipline for your writing. Mm. So Testament, wasn't it, your first? Yeah, that's
1: right. Book? Yeah. Well, I'm having to learn a whole new way to write because Testament took me seven years to write. It was very research-driven, and I would... I would write a section and then through that discover what I needed to know next and I would go to an archive in Berlin or Budapest to learn what I needed to know next and that would inform the characters and inform the story. So it was very organic, which is why it took so long. And my next novel, which is not a James Bond novel, is A Wild and Tree Relation that comes out in February next year with Virago. And from start to finish, that would have taken 14 years, obviously with other things happening in between. But because that was a similarly kind of organic process. Yeah. For this, it's a totally different prospect because it's a much shorter time frame. And also it's a much more collaborative venture. So I wrote an outline for the three books, a sort yeah. of roadmap, and I showed it to the Fleming family and discussed ideas with them, whereas normally you're just in your own head. Um, so that was a really interesting, different kind of process, and I now have this roadmap to follow. And the first thing I wrote, actually, was the last scene of book three. Okay. So I know where I'm heading. I just yeah. need to get there. But you still, you know, I think the more you write a novel, the more the novel tells you what it wants to be. So there are still moments I'm departing from that map and thinking, oh, I expected the characters to want to turn left here, but actually they want to turn right. And you you follow them and you see what happens.
0: Okay. Just jumping back to your history and um, your favourite so, talking about the Carrie, you've also mentioned in your um, various interviews and promotions of this book and others, Fleming, Chandler, mm-hmm. and how do they compare kind of kindred spirits with the genre mm-hmm. that you're dipping your toes into and what well, plunging into <laughs> rather than dipping your toes into? Um, and what strengths and um, nuances do you? feel you're bringing in from their rich history and the Le Carre history into your story?
1: I think that although Fleming, Chandler and Le Carre are different writers stylistically, what they have in common is that you could identify a page of their prose. If you didn't know who it was and you were just given it, and if all the character names were redacted, you would still know well, that's Raymond Chandler because it has a simile that's cost you over the head, you know? Or, or, or that's Ian Fleming because I can picture it like the open pan of a movie. Or, or that's John le because it makes me want to sit down on the pavement in Moscow and weep. You know, you, you, you know those writers. Yeah. They all developed their own language and their own vision onto the world. And that's something that... It's, it's hard for me to say because I think I'd have to step much further away from my own writing and look at it. But I think that there, there comes a leap that you have to make when you're writing, when you're developing your own style, and you have a fear. Suddenly you think, this doesn't sound like any other writer. Is that a bad thing? And then and then you think, well, hopefully it means I've developed my own voice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's... All of those writers that I love—they fed into my writing, and then what's emerged is—is is me. And so, hopefully, people could look at a, a page of my writing and say, "Well, that's got to be Kim." Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, continuing on the the Fleming theme, because you mentioned him quite a few times. So, the different continuation of lists um, over over time have kind of referenced style um, and used their projects, their books to kind of create a Fleming-esque or adopted his kind of um, mode of description. How have you, in the book, played tribute to it in part? Mm. But as going back to what you've talked about, establishing the the Kim style, mm.
1: Mm.
0: how have you made sure that it's there but not there? Mm. If that makes sense, that's Absolutely. a long-winded question. Sorry.
1: Absolutely. I I thought about that a lot, particularly in early drafting. I I thought about it like shared DNA. Where my Ian Fleming and I have a shared DNA. Yeah. And it helps that I read him so young, so I think he has he has influenced me. But there were there were three things in particular that I thought if I can resonate with that. So partly it was his unsettling, uncanny imagery. You know, he has moments like describing somebody's hands scuttling across a green base table like pink crabs, or somebody's eyes being like blackberries poached in blood. You know, these things that stay with you um, and are so visceral. So there were a few moments in Double or Nothing where I wanted to bring in very visceral language like that. So that was one element. Another was the the way he writes about place. Mm. And he, he brings settings to life with that very journalistic eye for detail, very specific evocative details. And, and it felt important to me to, to try and evoke that. And then the third thing was point of view. He uses this third person omniscient of view, kind of almost roving, so he can be in Bond's mind, he can be in other characters' minds, he can see Bond from the outside like an external camera, and that was hugely helpful for me because with Double or Nothing, you've got an ensemble cast, so we're occupying multiple people's uh, perspectives and we're seeing Bond through multiple people's memories. So I really took my cue from him there, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll emulate his point of view, and that will give me access to all of these different characters.
0: Really good question. Well, really good answer, sorry.
1: <laughs> um, good question. <laughs> um,
0: okay, so last kind of general question. Women within the traditional Bond uh, franchise, both literary and film, are always referred to as Bond girls,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that's an argument that goes on <laughs> right. for, for forever. Mm-hmm. As a creator... How do you see yourself in mm-hmm. that light? Would you would you challenge that?
1: Well, I heard once, and I I can't give you the citation, so I'm failing as an academic, but I heard once that Judy Dench said that she was very proud to be called a Bond Girl. So I do remember that. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah. I do. So I feel like if it's good enough for Judy Dench, it's good enough for me.
0: <laughs> Alright. Um, so uh, thanks for that kind of I suppose establishing <laughs> barrage of questions sure thing. Um, so now into the, the book so congratulations thanks. there's a there's a lot of story there mm-hmm. and there's a lot of complexity and modernization
1: mm.
0: so without giving too much away we've got a, a, a range of questions to go <laughs> through um, So the the first bit was around the two stories. So you've got two distinct stories interweaved into the narrative. What was the process of developing it? Was it initially two separate books Mm. or was it always one book, one narrative that, as you said, as you were writing, the characters took you on different journeys?
1: It was always one book. I, I thought about it like an ensemble cast. All of my favourite TV shows actually are ensemble casts. I love stories where you've got a you know a bench that's 25 people deep, and you can tap any of them and they'll carry the story. And that felt to me useful with something like widening out the Double O section because James Bond he's like a star. He has his own gravity. If he's there on the page, he, he, that's who you're paying attention to. You know, it's the same on screen. If he's on the screen, that's who you're paying attention to. It doesn't matter who else is in the frame. So if you, if you take him away, I feel like it would be too much responsibility to put on one character's shoulders and say, now I'm going to get you to care about this one other person. That's a, that's a big burden on that other character, you know. So I thought, let's share that and let's let's really widen it out and see who are these other O's as a wider cast. So I thought about having these two strands. In one, we have 003, Johanna Harwood. And 009 Sid Bashir, who who are looking for Bond and who are kind of investigating what might have happened to him. And on the other hand, we have 004 Joseph Dryden, who is working out whether this tech billionaire, virtual Paradise, really can halt the climate crisis like he says he can, or whether his intentions are a bit less pure than that. And the two um, the two narratives, as you say, they touch on each other and they part through the book.
0: Okay. Um... So you've touched on your kind of three lead um, characters. So when you were building them up and creating the Bond mystery, um, were you ever tempted just to focus in on one of those agents Mm. and thinking, oh, that's really interesting, I'd love to spend more time with them? Mm. Or was it always actually, I want to cherry pick and, Mm. and visit them? Differently as you were journeying through the writing process?
1: So for me, I was enjoying bouncing back and forth between. So I, I didn't write the book like separate sections and then and then mix it. I wrote it as people read it, bouncing back and forth between the characters. But that was really fun because it's a great challenge as a writer to keep occupying these different perspectives, these different voices. And it also gave me a chance to. So going back to that idea of, of Bond as a star with his own gravity, I thought about the book like a universe. If he had, if he was literally a star with his own gravity, and the other characters are planets. And Harwood and Bashir would be very close to him. They have intimate relationships with him. Harwood and Bond have had a romantic relationship. Bond was Bashir's mentor, and Harwood and Bashir are now engaged. So there's a whole complex love triangle going on, and they're very close to his gravity. And then you've got 004, Joseph Dryden, a little bit further away. You know, he didn't know Bond personally. To him, it's more of a security issue that Bond is missing than anything else. And he's off doing his own sort of adventure. And for that reason, I I found writing, going back and forth between the two quite useful because really it's the makeup of the book, you know, to to try and hold that balance. Okay.
0: And I suppose it helps with the context of the story Mm -hmm. because um, not only does it give each character the motivation mm. but it helps um, move things along yeah um okay um just touching on fleming you mentioned earlier on um the around the three themes so places so fleming in some you know some chapters spent pages and yeah. pages describing
1: yeah the customs of japan yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of-
0: uh, <laughs> so just wanted to touch on some of your locations because they feel very real oh thank you um so how did you select the locations you visit in the book and then have you traveled to them or are you just really good at research (laughs) um and then i want to ask around the barbican answer that
1: sure thing so part of it was uh pragmatism i was writing these books in lockdown which was a very strange way to write a chess setting novel (laughs) but it did allow me to escape um you know the, the four walls So part of it was thinking, well, where have I already been that that I could draw on? Because it's usually my method would be to go to everywhere I'm writing about. I did that with Testament and that's... I, uh, when I'm applying for research funding in the world of academia I call it um, site based research which truly really means going somewhere with a notebook <laughs> and standing still for a long time and just kind of absorbing what you see and getting those details that make something feel real so a lot of the places in the book I'd already been to and then there were some places that I hadn't been to but I felt were really useful for the plot and I'm very lucky that my dad is a tour manager for rock and roll bands so he spent his whole <laughs> life travelling the world so I would call him up and say have you been to um, you know a, a hotel in the middle of the desert in Kazakhstan by any chance and he'd say yeah what do you want to know <laughs> and I'd get the
0: details from it. oh that's that's amazing <laughs> having that that knowledge on tap <laughs>
1: very helpful uh,
0: beats Google anytime yes and it's the feeling the the, the, the emotive feeling so Then have you lived around the barbecue? Because you spend, there's a good chunk and we visit the barbecue a few times and Mm -hmm. it feels very detailed in your description and the the passageways and the the poured concrete,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, you almost feel you can touch.
1: Oh great, well thank you. Uh, So the Barbican is one of my all-time favorite buildings in the world, not just London. I wanted to put it in the book, um, but I haven't lived there, oh my God, I wish. Uh, But luckily, the Flemings know somebody who does live there. (laughs) So (laughs) I went to his flat actually after I'd um, I'd just recovered from COVID. So I turned out probably looking like a drowned rat. You know, I hadn't (laughs) seen sunlight for a long time. Um, And knocked on his door and said, would you please give me a (laughs) talk?" And he was very, very nice and uh, showed me around. And kind of showed me the bits that you don't get to see if you're just if you're just there yeah. visiting. And we walked around planning out the chase together. You know, they could jump here, they could fall here, all of that sort of thing. So that was a lot of fun. And then we actually did some of the... We did some photo shoots for the book and some filming around the Barbican as well. So I got to pretend that I live in the Barbican.
0: Oh, brilliant. Um, okay, so talking about chases. Mm. So there are lots of good chases in the book, mm. like all spy novels need. Yes. So, you can you tell us a little bit about the
1: car? Absolutely. So, we have a new car, the Alpine, and uh, this is really because the head of the Fleming Estate, Corinne Turner, who is a super cool woman, collects cars and said to me, how about the Alpine? And... I had never actually seen one in real life. So, you know, of course I said, absolutely, I put it in. Um, But I said, you know, it'd be really, really essential for my writing process if somebody takes me out in a sports car. (laughs) So they brought the Alpine up to Edinburgh my confession is that I don't know how to drive. I'm a complete London baby and I never, never, you know, there's no point in learning how to drive in London. So really, I just need people to drive me around in sports cars all the time in life. <laughs> but they took me out in the car and I went out with an actual race car driver. And we went around Edinburgh. And Edinburgh obviously has those like very twisty cobbled yeah. streets and we were going around and I was thinking, well, this is very beautiful, of course, but it's sort of like any other car. I don't quite get the price tag. And then we got out to a long stretch of road and the driver just floored it without telling me and i felt like my spine had been left several blocks behind it was so fun and as soon as he slowed down i said can we do that again just, <laughs> <I> loved it <laughs> but i couldn't tell him what i was doing it was still a secret then oh. so he asked me he knew i was a writer and he said what are you writing about and i said oh i'm i'm writing a, a book about cars and then he turned to me and said but you told me you can't drive. Oh damn! <laughs> <That's the laughs> worst cover story ever.
0: <laughs> oh, um, so what? Um, so the, the car, I think, is featured in a chapter. Is it a whole chapter? I'm
1: trying to think. Is, yeah, is it, it, um, it pops up and a few times, then it gets a whole chapter to itself. Yeah. yeah.
0: So when you were writing that sequence, it's in a. Very beautiful location that you get glimpses of. So, when you were mapping that that chase out, how did you go about that process? And then, obviously, uh, without giving away anything in uh, in the book, there are some things that Q Branch have tweaked. Mm-hmm. So, how did you come to those decisions and that kind of the beats of the chase?
1: Mm. So for the chase, I thought... First of all, I thought about it cinematically because that's where we're used to sort of seeing car chases. And, of course, the great virtue of film is editing. So Fast and Furious, we constantly have cuts to them shifting gear a thousand times, you know, and that's really exciting. But on the page, you're in the character's mind and they're not thinking about shifting gear a thousand times. So my first challenge was how do I make this interesting to read? And so I I, I won't go into it, I don't want to spoil it too much, but um, there's a sort of fundamental reveal in that chapter as the character who's driving the car thinks back through their past. So it was about mapping the chase onto their memories. So ramping up the suspense as they are thinking about uh, this very significant moment in their life. So that was almost mapping geography onto memory. And then with the gadgets, I spoke to um, uh, Seb Alpine, and just said to him, like, talk me through, talk me through the car and he told me there's one button in the car that doesn't do anything we put it there it had a reason then the reason kind of became obsolete but we kept the button and for a writer that's like oh my god a button that doesn't do anything <laughs> so the, the moment i had that detail i was just i was off to the races
0: <laughs> um, all right so um, you mentioned um, earlier on it's a trilogy of books so you've talked about having that last having a roadmap in that last chapter um can you tell us anything about that?
1: Well, what can I tell you without someone uh, coming in? Me. in and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I really have, it. you know, it's a trilogy and it's been conceived as a trilogy. So, I started to write book two while I was editing book one and the stories really do continue into each other. They also have their standalone elements so if people just want to start with book two I suppose they can, although you know, I'd rather they didn't but I guess they could. Um, but for me the stories are flowing into each other and that was the the great benefit of knowing it's a trilogy from the outset because I can have my eye on these very long character arcs which are really yeah. fun to write.
0: Okay. Um can you tell us a little bit about the title so loaded question so um, titles have lots of contention around them Mm -hmm. lots of decision lots of input marketing people Mm -hmm. authors publishers legal people Mm. How did you end up on the title? Did you engineer it into the story? Did it naturally come out of the story?
1: Well, I was quite lucky, really, in that I didn't have all of the... I think you're right, usually focus groups and all these things, but um, it was it was the first thing I wanted. I, I wanted... you It know, kind of comes down to a pun, you know. <laughs> um, Ian Fleming's titles are so brilliant, and I love the ones that are quite idiomatic, and so I thought, I want to have double O in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, and then I'm as I was developing the villain who has a uh so that's, I think it's This spoiler to this comes up pretty quickly. He he's very heavily into gambling. Yes. So then the then the double or nothing phrase came to me, and so it was sort of baked into character and story, and also wanting to, I guess, make a statement by putting double o in some way in the title to say we are we are expanding to create a, a wider double o universe, and and luckily everyone liked it.
0: All right. We've got one minute left before okay. people come busting in I'll and tell a us one to stop. <laughs> um, so, uh, really hard question. Mm. What was the most challenging aspect of writing the book, mm. and what are you most proud of? <laughs> and so, <there's> three questions <laughs> three secretly. <laughs> now that it's out, mm. how are you celebrating?
1: Oh, those are lovely questions. I think the most challenging part was silencing my worries. You know, you start off and you think, James Bond belongs to everybody. So you want to you want to make everybody happy. I've loved this character since childhood. I don't want to let myself down. So it was a matter of, of silencing all of that noise and just saying to myself, just enjoy it. Just enjoy writing it. Um, what am I proudest of? I think it's just an unbelievable honor to get to every time i write james bond on a page i just start giggling to myself so it's it's this amazing honor um, to get to write in this world i still kind of pinching myself and how am i celebrating well we've got some martinis on the way <laughs> And um, I think it's, uh, you know, let the games begin.
0: (laughs) Um, Kim, thank you very much for your time. Congratulations on a fantastic book. We look forward to book two and three. Um, Hopefully in a matter of weeks, I'm sure it's going to be longer than (laughs) that. Um, But um, enjoy the success. And um, we look forward to keeping up with you on Twitter.
1: Thank you so much.